Okay, we are studying the life of David, which is what we're going to do here for this next year-long season. And we are in 1 Samuel 18. I'm going to have a few comments. It's last week's outline first as we finish up 1 Samuel 18, uh, verse 20 we're going to begin with. And that we see the beginning of Saul's hatred and envy and jealousy towards David, how he is now beginning uh, not only to repudiate David, but to actually try to kill him. Um, and uh, we see how David handles this adversity. Um, and we saw last, last week how uh, Saul had promised David his eldest daughter in marriage. Uh, and then at the appointed time of the marriage, Saul takes that girl and gives him to somebody else in an obvious attempt to embarrass David. And yet you don't see David uh, striking out at God. You don't see that. And in fact, what you're going to see here as this episode goes on into chapter 19, and Saul will absolutely pursue David to kill him, you will never see David strike back at Saul to take the kingdom from Saul. You will not see that. It's as if David says, God, he was your appointed man. I'm bowing in submission to you. I bow in humility to you, God. I will be your man. You will direct my steps. You will take me where I have to go. You will do with Saul what you believe is appropriate with Saul. Wow, when you say that to God, when you say, God, I'm, I'm going to rely on you uh, to fight the battles that need to be fought, what a powerful, what a powerful uh, statement that is about faith. So turn to 1 Samuel 18, begin with verse 20 now. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. How do you like those words? Now you have a second opportunity to become my, son, my son-in-law. Most of us would tell him, get lost. Get lost. And yet you see even the, the secondary motives in his heart. He obviously knew his daughter, and he felt that his daughter had such a character that she would wind up being a snare to David. She would not be an uplifting experience, but in fact would probably wind up dragging him down, and we're going to talk about those issues later as we continue this study. Um, and so how does David react to this? Verse 22, then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David pri privately and say, look, the king is pleased with you and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. This guy's a real politician, okay? I'm going to make sure I really polish this apple up so that you're going to do this. They repeated these words to David. But David said, and this I love these words, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. Wow. This is a guy who would effectively be in the lineage of Jesus Christ. You see his attitude. You see his heart. You see the humility. This is not a faked pose. This is really true humility from the bottom of his heart. I'm a poor man. I don't deserve these honors. I don't deserve to be the, the son-in-law of the king, even though everybody in the country knows who I am, even though I've had the greatest military victory that anybody could possibly have, even though I'm lifted up when women shout my name, he kills his 10,000 as compared to Saul killing his thousands. And yet you see humility. 
This is an overwhelming, repeating lesson in the life of David. If you want to be a humble man, that is how God wants to speak to your heart. Your arrogance gets nowhere. If you are arrogant in life and arrogant in your relationship with others and arrogant even as you pray to God, those prayers won't go above the ceiling. I'll tell you flat out. It's only when you come with a broken, contrite heart, understanding humility, what God expects of you. We are humbled. We don't deserve a thing. Anything that you have in life, God has given to you. I repeat that. Anything that you have in your life, God has given to you. Because he's given you gifts and talents and opportunity. And yes, you have taken advantage of them, but God has given you all those things. So don't go puffing yourself up, thinking how smart you are, how brilliant you are, how affluent you are. God can take it away in a moment's notice. A moment's notice. Uh, and it's only when you have that humble heart that God knows how to bless you more. Because why would he bless and continue to bless someone who is so arrogant in their, in their viewpoint that they would not put the blessings back at God's throne. You understand that? So if you want to be used by God, you want to be advancing in the kingdom of God, you want more spiritual blessings in every possible way, the first step in this process is submission and humility. And you see it here in this man in the most extraordinary circumstances. I am only a poor man and little known. Verse 24, when Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins. How's that? To take revenge on his enemies. How's that? Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hand of the Philistines. What a loving father-in-law. <laughs> this is a great man. What a great. And by the way, you know, he didn't start off this way. Saul started off right. He was anointed by God. He was almost unanimously picked as the king of Israel. And yet you see, within a short period of time, we studied it, how he went off the tracks. Now look at this. He can't even approach his future son-in-law in a godly way. He's already conspiring. I mean, can you imagine doing this to your daughter as well? That your, do your daughter's going to be a widow? because you hate this guy so much. So you set up this dowry, this most unusual dowry, I have to say. I don't know if I've ever heard a dowry like this. A hundred Philistine foreskins. There's not much to say. The, word, the words say it for itself, all right? All right, and his plan was that David would die. He would die. There's no way he would be able to do this. David would die. Uh, and. And so it's amazing. Um, and so before the allotted time elapsed, David understands the instructions before the allotted time. And what that means is there obviously was a time restraint on this. I, I love Saul. I want this, and I want it like in uh, eight and a half days. I want it in eight and a half days, okay? This is not an open, extended situation. There's a, there's a, a short time period. The allotted time elapsed. David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. How's that? You like that? 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. 
That's quite an image in my mind of him coming back to the king. I don't want to go into it too much, but you in your own mind can, can reconnoiter that whole, that whole experience as he effectively gives the dowry to Saul. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, now let me stop and po- pause on that. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, yes, Saul, what part of this are you not getting? You send him out for 100, he comes back with 200. You send him out into the most dangerous area, and he comes back victorious. More victories, uh, all in all, than anybody else uh, in the Israeli army at this point, because he's under the protection and anointing of God. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days, and that's important. He will never have a reconciliation with David. He will have an ongoing spirit of hatred and jealousy and envy. He will be consumed. He will be consumed by that spirit of jealousy. Now, again, what a lesson this is for you. I mean, all of us suffer what I would call momentary lapses of envy. That's not a sin, okay? Let me say that again. Having a momentary lapse of envy is not a sin. It's it's when that momentary lapse takes root in your heart and then you nurture it. You put water on it and you grow it and you take care of it and it blossoms in your heart and it gets bigger and bigger and consumes every waking hour to the point where God can't even speak to you anymore, where you've blocked off the spirit of God because you've been consumed with this spirit of jealousy and anger. If you find yourself falling into this, I would honestly say to you, go before God and repent. Go before God and repent. And by the way, I'm not saying you have to get in sackcloth and ashes. I'm not saying you have to do this in church and go in front of an altar. I'm saying you bow your heart wherever you are and ask God, Lord, please search my heart. Help me, Lord. I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be like this. Change my heart, Lord. Make me be more conscious of this. Fill me with love, Father. And one of the things that I will tell you that I have found in my own life when I have this kind of thing going on from time to time When somebody has, let's say, hurt me, or I perceive that I'm not being treated rightly, uh, and I find myself beginning to have resentment, because resentment falls into this same category, resentment, I find that I have to pray for that person. All right? I have to pray for that person. It's as if God says, the only antidote for you to take this rat poison out of your life is to pray for the person who you think is hurting you. And I'm going to tell you something, that the more you do this, the more you bow in submission before God and humility, and you pray for somebody who you think is wronging you, you're going to be amazed how that poison is going to leave your life. That's God helping you to come to terms with it. Because you cannot have a triumphant Christian life if you have this obstacle in your life. You cannot. And so you may think you're having a triumphant life, and yet you're wondering why God is not using you in a greater way. And you may wonder why some spiritual blessings are not coming into your life. It's because you have these obstacles in your heart that you have not confessed. You see it here with Saul. Ultimately, this would doom Saul. 
He would go to his death hating David and not being uplifted by God. It's a horrible, horrible endgame that you see here. And so you see it. The Philistine commanders, verse 30, continued to go out to battle as often as they did. David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. How do you like that? His name became well known because God was with him, because God protected him uh, in every possible way. And what an incredible example this is. Now, there's a, a passage, a parallel passage in the New Testament that gives us great light on this, and that's Romans chapter 12. Turn there. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. You got it, brother. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Wow. Wow. How's that? How's that for a laundry list of humility and coming before God and recognizing that we are all in the body of Christ? All right? I'm not talking about the body of the church. I'm talking about the body of Christ. This room represents the body of Christ. You, multiplied by hundreds of millions throughout this world, represent the body of Christ. Across denominational lines, in every church, in every denomination, throughout the world, there are people who are serving God and bowing in submission. And now here's the danger. Do not think more highly of yourself. Oh, yes, God. Oh, I thank you for what you've given me. If it weren't for me, oh, this Bible study would collapse. There would be no Bible study on Monday. Bzzz. <laughs> Wrong. Do you honestly think that if God saw a need in the hearts of people, that he wouldn't bring somebody else here to do his word? Nobody. Nobody is irreplaceable. You understand? Don't ever get to the point where you think more highly of yourself. I ask God every day, Lord, help me, Father. Help me to recognize the gifts that you've given me and what you want me to be and how you want me to do it. Nobody is going to be drawn to the, to the, to the throne or to the cross of Jesus because some arrogant man approached them about the gospel. Who wants to hang around with arrogant people? I despise it. I can't stand it. It, make, it makes me sick. In my stomach, when I, hang, when I see people that immediately lift themselves up, you know, it's funny, as I've gotten older, I've gotten less tolerant of that. Really. 
I've gotten less tolerant. You know, when I was younger, I could put up with a lot of that stuff. Somebody would be a braggart uh, or lifting themselves up. I find myself now that, uh, that as I understand what God wants from us, then when I see that kind of spirit, that's not the spirit of God. That's the spirit of evil, all right? That's the spirit of people, and I repudiate that. I don't want to be around that kind of thing. I don't want to be associated with that kind of thing, and neither should you. And it starts with you. And look at how God speaks here about these various gifts. This is an amazing um, chapter because God uh, speaks specifically through Paul about these gifts belonging, all of us belonging to one, one body, the body of Jesus Christ. And look at, the, look at it as he talks about the many gifts. No, no one has all the gifts. No one person has all the gifts. And the gifts are critical for the advancement. They're critical for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. That's it. Grace. Unmerited. You didn't deserve it. You're not getting it because you're smart or because you have a winsome personality. You're getting it through the grace of Jesus Christ, the gifts that you have. And now you should use those. And he talks about the gifts. Well, you know, you, you might say, well, the greatest gift is a guy who can uh, preach, prophesying. That's got to be the greatest gift. And you don't see Paul saying this is the greatest gift. He equates the gifts together. They are all equally important because the work of God cannot go on unless all the gifts are in exhibit. And, and now God is saying here through Paul that we use the gifts in proportion to, us, to our faith. And what's interesting here is look at the gifts that he talks about. The gift of serving. How's that? The gift, being a servant, serving God is a gift. How, do, how does that wind up being a gift? It means that in humility, you bow before the throne. You don't lift yourself up. And if you're asked to do something for the greater gift of God, you don't say, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're, you're asking me to be an usher. Come on, I should be up near the front, not the back. Instead of you saying, Lord, I'll serve where you want me to serve. I'll serve where you want me to serve. Serving is a gift. Teaching is a gift. How's this? Encouraging is a gift. That's a gift that is definitely, definitely underused. How many of you are encouraging to the body of Christ? How many of you are encouraging? Or have we become professional critics? You know what I mean. Some of you will go to church, and the first thing you'll do when you come out of church is talk about how to, what a lousy sermon that was. Man, that was a lousy sermon. I can't remember anything about it. Guy was all over the briar patch. I can't remember a thing he said. And that music, where are they getting these songs from? All right, I heard a yes in the back. <laughs> I heard a yes in the back. You know what I'm talking about. I can't, I can't sing these songs. I don't know these songs. All right, that's it. You've got the gift of encouragement, brother. God bless you. Oh, you are a blessing. I love hanging around with you. You just lift me up. I mean, honestly, what do you think? Honestly, what do you think God wants you to be? You think he wants you to be a professional critic, or does he want you to be a professional encourager? 
This is, the, this is being in the humility of God. And look, I don't think that, oh boy, John's special. John's not special. Everything I talk to you about is what I've already suffered. I go through it. You don't think I don't complain. You don't think I, I, I hear music that I don't like. But you know what? Here's the difference. The old me would dwell on it and will continue to repeat it for days. The new me, after I say it within about five or ten minutes, I go, oh, God, forgive me, Lord. I shouldn't say that. Forgive me, God. Forgive me. Help me to encourage. Let me go to a brother that's trying to do the right thing and say to him, I appreciate you. I love you. I thank God for you. That's what God wants you to do. That's what you see here in the spirit of David. That's what this is about. This is why this lesson has to resonate with us. I mean, it's so, it's so profound. Um, and, and if it is contributing to the needs of others, let me talk to you about that. Affluence is a gift. The ability to give is a gift. The ability to have a love for the work of God is a gift when it emanates from your wallet. My dad used to say to me all the time that the last place a Christian is saved is in his wallet. Okay? All right? The last, person, last place a Christian is saved is in his wallet. What does it mean? It means it becomes what happens to us is even as God pours blessings into your life, uh, and, and, and when you don't, bow in humility, and you don't bow in submission, all you do is, yeah, I want more. Yeah, how can I get more? How can I get more? How can I climb the ladder? Instead of bowing your head and saying, God, I'm not worthy of what you're giving me. How can I advance the kingdom of God? Who needs help? Where can I go with this? How can I advance your work? That's a gift. It's a gift. Giving is a gift. Uh, and when you come to terms with this, when you really understand this and bow in submission before God, oh, God is going to bless you so much. And look, I'm not one of these guys that says, you know, oh, yeah, you know, God wants you to live in a mansion. God wants you to have a big boat. God wants you to have a, uh, 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 a big job. That's wrong. That's wrong. But God wants you to have a happy life. He wants to give you the spiritual blessings in your life like he did with David, who here he is, even though he's being pursued by evil, is still grateful for the blessings of God. That's what God wants to give you. That's what this is about. That's why this story resonates so much uh, with me and, and I believe with you as well. And so you see this. And so here we have this man who everything is coming against him, who is who Saul, the king that he's trying to follow and trying to uplift, despises him, hates him, is trying to kill him, will make a number of attempts on his life. And yet when he's given the gift, the chance to possibly be the king's son-in-law, he bows in submission. He bows in humility. What a lesson this is. And you see here as we study this that David always behaved wisely even during these difficult times, even when promotion is passed by him, even when things go against him, he still behaves wisely. Why? Because he's sold out to God. He's sold out in humility. He's sold out in submission. And so that's the essence here. That's the essence of what we want to teach and what we want to study. And now as we migrate into chapter 19, 
uh, we are going to see further evidence of how God is protecting David. Because things are going to get worse. You're saying, oh, how, how can it get worse? It gets worse. It gets worse. Because now in this chapter, Saul is going to pursue David with many, many soldiers. He's going to try to root him out as he tries to kill him and destroy him. And so let's begin with uh, 1 Samuel chapter 19. Let's read the first seven verses. Saul told his son, Jonathan, and all the attendants to kill David. But David was very fond, but Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, my father, Saul, is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I found out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. This is a beautiful set of verses in which you see the spirit of a godly man, Jonathan. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Jonathan. Here he is, the son, the oldest son of Saul, the person who will be next in line to become king once his father dies. Uh, and you can imagine all of the uh, honors and privileges that would come from being the king of Israel. And yet here's a man who, because he's a godly man, a humble man, sees David and recognizes that David should be the next king of Israel. And so he doesn't let jealousy or envy enter his heart. Instead, he tries to become an intercessor. This whole set of verses relates to intercession. And so you see here, as you study the gift of intercession, which also amounts to being a peacemaker. Jonathan will be a peacemaker. He will come, become, he will come between people that have conflict, and it will be as if he puts oil on the water. This is an important lesson for you to get. God wants us to be intercessors. God wants us to be peacemakers. What does that mean? That means if you see two brothers, you see two issues coming, coming into conflict, God wants you to stand up and intervene and pray and speak and uplift. And look at how he did it here. He went to Saul and he spoke to Saul uh, through the Spirit of God. He spoke to him and said, look at this situation. He's not an evil man. He's never done anything bad. He's done everything to honor God. And you know how happy you were. It was like Saul is suddenly hearing, hearing for the first time the words of God being repeated to him as this jealousy and envious spirit subsides. Uh, and, you know, Jesus has spoken about this uh, in the Beatitudes. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 
verse 9. And these are the Beatitudes. So this is right off the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. How's that? How do you like that? Is that an important uh, nomination? The sons of God. That's how much God respects peacemakers, intercessors, the ability to pray, the ability to reach out. And so this is an important lesson for you also as men of God, that when you're in a situation that you know there's difficulties uh, between people, there may be difficulties in the church, God doesn't want you to sit silently by. God would rather that you pray and you reach out and you find a way to mediate, find a way to intercede. That's what God wants. Uh, and do it in a godly way. I mean, and you see how he did it here. He didn't say to his father, you're, you know, you're, you're an ignoramus. You're an ignoramus. You're, you're going to go to hell. You didn't see him say this. Look what he said. Instead, he focused on the better part of Saul's spirit. Oh, look at him. Look at what David has done for the country. Look what David's done for you. And he's focusing on, on the better part of Saul. That's how God wants us to intercede and how God wants us to do that. And in fact, Jonathan put his life on the line. You know what kind of a guy Saul was. You think it was easy to go before Saul and say, look, Father, you're wrong. You're wrong. Your attitude is wrong. This is not pleasing to God. You think that took courage? You can bet it did. This is the same guy that's flinging spears, right? He's flinging spears in the royal palace when all of a sudden you do something or you're not quite on the same page with him and all of a sudden a spear comes flying. This guy is barely under control. And yet God, God touched Jonathan. And you're going to see Jonathan be this kind of friend. And I would say this is important also. You need these spiritual friends in your life. First of all, you need to be this kind of friend to the brothers in this room, to the brothers and sisters in your life. You need to be this kind of friend. You need to be the kind of friend who com comes up to somebody who's hurting and you pray for them or, or maybe somewhat out of line in the, in the work of God and speak to them kindly. Or even perhaps someone who's in authority in authority and not acting in accordance with the will of God. As you pray about it, you need to come out and speak. God wants you to speak. God wants you to act. God wants this kind of friendship in our lives. I would pray that every man in this room would be this kind of a friend, to go out and look at somebody, even if that person is not popular, even if you know somebody is not respected properly, and maybe it's not cool to be friends with somebody like that. Maybe people in the church or your community might look a little askance at you, might look a little askance at you because you're, you're friendly with somebody because you know that person's a good person and they're not been treated right. God wants you to stand up. He wants you to stand up. He wants you to be his man. That's what spiritual friendship is about. That's what intercession is about. That's what peacemaking is about. This is Jonathan. This is a key role for godly men. And you don't hear it preached enough. All right? This is a key role in men, for men. And you see Jonathan doing this uh, in an incredible, incredible way. Let's continue reading. Verse 7, so Jonathan called David, told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Once more, war broke out. And by the way, what goes on here is that the Philistines kind of continue to advance war. It's like a couple months off, a couple months on. 
very warlike people hated, hated the Jews. What's new? Uh, um, and, and so uh, David is there. War breaks out. David went out and fought the Philistines. This is verse 8. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. Verse 9. But an evil spirit, underline that, from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. Now let me stop. The translation says an evil spirit from the Lord. That is a mistranslation, really, of what it's about. God does not send evil. But God will allow the hedge of protection around your life to come down somewhat. God will allow your heart to be hardened. Why? Because you've already hardened your heart. And so God says, this is what you want. This is what you are. You've refused to listen to me. And so God says, if that's what you want, that's where you want to go, I'll allow you to go. I'll allow you to go. And that's what it is. And that's what this evil spirit was about. Because you see this. And But as an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, he was, as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, that's always a dangerous thing with Saul. I'm just going to give you a clue that if you're in the palace and you're in with Saul, if he's got a spear in his hand, mm, get out of the line of sight. All right, because you know from this story, these don't work out really good. While David was playing the harp, can you get this scene? He's playing the harp. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But Saul, what happened to you swearing you love me? Where did the love go? Where did the love go? Yet you said you would, where did the love go? It went right out the window. I don't care what you swear to. If your heart's not right, you're not going to be able to be right with God. All of the things, all the intentions of your heart are meaningless, meaningless without the grace of God. I told you before, uh, and I remember when I said it, I can't remember precisely, but here's the issue. We could study all the Aristotelian ethics. We could take them out and review them and go through them and all the ethical principles, all the precepts, here's what they are. We'll memorize them. This is how we are to act in this situation and to that situation. And yet, without the grace of Jesus Christ, you can't fulfill one line. You can't fulfill one line. Oh, I've studied the ethical principles. Yes, you've studied them. Are you living your life like that? Well, they're hard. They're hard. That's right, they're hard. They're impossible without God. They're impossible without God. So here he is. Here he is after swearing that he will honor David, now flinging a spear and trying to pin him, pin him to the wall. David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That had to be some heave by Saul because those, those walls were stone. Uh, and wood timbers, I can just imagine what that had to be like. Uh, and so that night, David made good his escape. Now, historically, you're going to see that once David makes this escape, he's not going back. He's not going back to the palace. He's done. But this will begin, again, years worth of pursuit uh, and a difficult, hard life. And you're going to see that. Verse 11, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. How do you like that? It gets worse. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael led David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed 
covering it with a garment and putting goat's hair on it at the head. Get this picture. Here's Saul da- Saul's daughter telling David, you've got to get out of here. If you wait till the morning, look at them. They're outside. They're going to kill you. You're going to be dead. So let's escape. I'll send you out through a window, but I'll put an image in the bed, an idol, a mannequin effectively. I'll dress it up as a man, and they'll think that you're still here, uh, and you'll have made your escape. Uh, And continuing on, verse 14, when Saul set the men to capture David, uh, they approached the house, they come into the house. Michael said, he is ill. And Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. How do you like that? Bring him here in the bed. I don't care that he's sick. Bring him and the bed both. I'll kill him in the bed. You see, do you see the spirit of evil? I mean, really. You see the spirit of evil? Uh, but when the men entered the house, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goats here. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he may, so that he would escape? By the way, look at the very words of Saul, how they have now turned on him. This was the guy who said he was sending his daughter so that his daughter would be in a snare and trap David and said the very snare that he set now is complicit in getting David to escape. Do you see how God works? That's your plan? That's your big plan? I'll turn it on its head. I'll turn it on its head. Uh, And you see this in just a powerful, powerful way. Uh, And Michael said to to Saul, he he said to me, let me get away. Why why should I kill you? Uh, And and continuing in verse 18, when David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul, Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth, and stayed there. Now let's understand what this is about. David is going back to the prophet who anointed him. David is going back. It's as if David is saying, Lord, I don't know what's going on. Lord, I know you anointed me. I, Lord, no, I, I know you had a plan for my life, but what kind of plan is this? How many of you have said that to God? I'm sure there's at least one or two. Okay? One or two. That you've served God, you've followed God, you bowed in submission to God, and yet things are not looking good. And you can fill in not looking good into any personal aspect of your life that we all have issues with. Money, relationships, affluence, position. Do I have to keep going on? There's not an issue. Your children. All of them. What is it, God? I've tried to serve you. I tried to be your man. And yet, look at this plan. What kind of plan is this? What kind of plan is this that I'm being pursued, that spears are coming after me? I don't understand it. I want to show you something. This is all in the plan of God. Every single thing that you see here with David, God has planned for. It is a trial. God is preparing David to be king. God is preparing David for dark times, for evil times, for people that will not be with him. God is preparing him. And so even when you can't get your arms around it, that you don't understand it, God is saying to you, I have a plan. I want you to know this. I have a plan. It's hard. It's hard. Being a Christian is hard. Not easy. It's not a a rose-petaled roadway, right? 
God understands. Look, you look at how Jesus walked. Look at the disciples, how they walked. It's not an easy path, but the goal is big. And when you walk this way and then you've been prepared by God, what a blessing you're going to be to other people. And you can reach out to somebody who's in torment and persecution and suffering, and you can say to them, I've been there. I know what it's like. I've suffered like you, but God never abandoned me. And not once do you see David railing against God. You don't see him doing that. And so now he's with Samuel, uh, and he's at Naoth. And Naoth is an interesting place because it's a place where effectively it was a school for prophets. And so there he is. Uh, uh, and so uh, Saul now is sending men out to Naoth. Word came back to Saul. Verse 19, word came to Saul. David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as the leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. How do you like that? How do you like that? We've come to kill him. And the Spirit of God descends, and what happens? These, these soldiers now start prophesying. I, I can't tell you exactly what it is, but obviously what it is, they may have started speaking verses biblical verses, affirming God. These people who had come to be killers are now overtaken by the Spirit of God. What a picture, isn't it? Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. I need to send more guys. I got to send more men. I need a bigger boat, right? And they start prophesying. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. You got to wonder about Saul. He's not getting the message here. Every time he sends guys, they wind up prophesying even greater than the ones before. Finally, verse 22, finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? You can imagine now, the king comes out himself. Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah. But the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. Can you imagine this whole situation? He's actually prophesying. He's prophesying from God as he's walking to try to kill David. The Spirit of God had overtaken him. What happens next? Verse 24. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all that day and night this is why people say, is Saul among, also among the prophets? Let me just get this picture for you. He's taken all his clothes off. He's nude. He's laying there prophesying all day and all night. What does this mean? Well, I'm going to tell you, you see what the words mean. God has exhibited his control and power over Saul. He's saying to Saul, you are nothing. You serve only at my whim. And by taking off the clothes, the robes, effectively what God has done is he's stripping him of his kingship. You are nothing. You came into the world with nothing. You're going to leave the world with nothing. That's the message here for us as men. This is what God wants to drill home. You think you're a big shot? You think you're the king? I put you in that position, and I'll take you out of that position. And here he is. Without any clothes, without any robes, laying there for 24 hours, doing nothing but prophesying. And what happens while this is going on? David escapes. God allows the escape of David. And next week, when we continue this study, 
we're going to look at Psalm 59, which is the psalm that David wrote about this very circumstance. And you'll get an insight into the heart of David as exhibited in Psalm 59. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for these words. I thank you for these men. Lord, I ask you that these words grow and resonate in our heart this week, that we realize evermore about what you want for us, what your will is for us, and the importance of humility in every aspect of our lives, Lord. Continue to bless these men and protect them and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.